this is Listeners, welcome to this brand new, fabulous, spectacular episode of Warped Celluloid. I'm your host, Jack Rourke, with my co-host, Chandler Williams. How you doing, Chandler? How's the vibe going? I'm good, Jack. I'm chilling, you know. Summer. What about you? Doing a lot of riding lately, actually. I mean, started going to the gym more often. I'm feeling great, actually. Nice. That's yep. great. Anyway, shall we care to introduce our special guest? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Got a little cut out there. Hi, everybody. Martin Fisher here. I wrote a book. I got brought into a podcast. I feel great. It's 102 outside. I'm ready to die. Hello. Welcome. I, I did art for that book. Yes, you did. Jack did art for the book. He did illustrations for every single story. 20 stories in all. Please buy the book. I'm, I'm Please, great guys, we're, we're having to eat spare copies of the book. <laughs> <laughs> We're starving here, man. You know, when I was a kid, I actually had a problem where I was like three or four, and I would eat paper just to fucking do it. Wow. <laughs> not kidding. Really? And then, huh? Re- really? Yeah, I don't know why. It's like, it's a weird thing. I looked it up. It's a thing that some people, like, when they're little kids, they do it just because, like, they need something in their mouth to chew on. Mm. And so I would do it. And then I remember being four years old and going, I was eating, like, green papers. So I'm like, what the hell am I doing with my life? Like, I had a fucking a realization at four years old, and now I wrote books. So, you know what? It, it all comes back around. You know, I, I consumed paper, and now I'm writing on books, and it uh, feels great, I got to tell you. Sigmund Freud would be proud. I know, right? <laughs> and speaking of psychology, Chandler, what film will we be talking about today? Today we'll be talking about Manhunter. sliding door nationwide victims yeah this is will graham of the fbi one killer this is what the subject's teeth look like Find him, damn it. 
FBI agent Will Graham. Manhunter. Yeah, I love Manhunter. Let's do this. I love Hannibal Lecter in general, so this is actually perfect. I'm glad oh, I was yeah, wrong for this. I actually, I'm not that experienced with Hannibal Lecter. Like, I, obviously, I'm aware of who, who he is cult, culturally as an icon kind of horror and, fi, and crime fiction in general, but I'm more came for this as a fan of Michael Mann. Mm-hmm. Man, the director. And director yeah, you're you're a big fan of him. Uh, you you're the one that introduced yeah. me to him, actually. Yeah, I gave I blend him. I lent Chandler my Blu-ray copy of Heat or in Heat one night. I don't know, back in January, I think. Yeah. I think you'd really like The Insider too. That's a really really good one. Not an action movie, actually. Speaking yeah, I've been, of, uh, I've meaning to check out The Insider because, like, I, I haven't seen a lot of Michael Mann's filmography. I've seen about six of his movies. Um, and when I go on like his Wikipedia page, it's like, you know, the, there's heat and then I get to insider just this huge block of awards, nominations and everything. I, say, I think it's the only big Oscar film he ever did. Yeah. It was ridiculous. How many I saw, I had to keep scrolling to get past all of yeah. it. But, uh, this was not actually a big Oscar film. In fact, it was no. shockingly not that big of a film period. This is the movie that Michael Mann did after he tuck and rolled on the keep, which basically overlord, if it was barely comprehensible, not Michael Mann's fault. In fact, that. He tried to, I'm thinking he tried to bury the film when it came out. He mm. was not happy with it. That's a bummer, because I, I I literally just bought it yesterday. Yeah. I, mean, I kind of want to check it out. Item. I'm planning on doing, actually, I do movie nights or occasionally with my friend, my friends, and uh, when things go back to normal. I'm mm. sure, one of the ones I wanted to do was uh, The Keep and Overlord, because they're so similar in some ways. Mm. World War II Nazi horror movies. We need more of those. There's not enough of those. At least not enough of those with like an actual budget. Okay. Yeah. The, the only ones I can think of besides Overlord are the cheap or our cheap stuff like the or shockwaves and that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Surf Nazis. <laughs> oh right, Surf Nazis. Was, I sent you the poster for that one. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Got, I need to find out about this movie. movie. Of amazing. course, it's a trauma movie. Oh, of course. <laughs> Who else could have done that? We haven't even been recording for like five minutes and we're already off topic. Oh, that's going to be the whole podcast, man. You know, that's just all it's going to be. It happens. It happens. Anyways, Manhunter. Manhunter. A lot should, of... we, should we introduce it? Or... Yeah. And yeah, look, this is one I'm actually, everyone's more familiar with Silence of the Lambs, which is that probably the first soft reboot in first, in film history? Like soft reboot. I mean, not I mean, because... It's technically a sequel, but they hmm. they brought in a different creative team. They completely revamped the cast. Or the cast, it has a completely different look and feel to it. Yeah. Um, to it. I, I'm trying to think <clears throat> about any other examples, because I was thinking about that, too, when I rewatched the movie yesterday. And for the life of me, I can't think of any other soft reboot sequels that happened, because it, it's such a common thing now. It's it, We see it all the time. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, even in, like, you know, Force Awakens, movies, the last couple thing. Turner movies. Yeah. Like, or like the, the weird Halloween. Ghost Rider movies. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, it's it's strange. Um, Although there was a face that I noticed that is actually in uh, Manhunter that's also in Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal. And it's really? totally blinking you miss it. It's um the guy who played Barney, uh, the um the asylum security guard in, in Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal. Huh. Do you remember him? Mm. Hannibal the show or Hannibal the Ridley Scott film? The Ridley Scott film. Ah, he's the guy who sells um, the Hannibal Lecter mask to uh, Gary Oldman. Really? Yeah, I... he's in Manhunter, but he's in a completely different blink and you'll miss it role as like um, he's the guy who faxes over 
um uh tom noonan's um like id and everything oh we're definitely gonna get to tom noonan but first off oh, yeah. I mean, that yeah, reminds yeah. me uh actually william peterson and dennis farino their and their first film roles with, were with michael mann because uh william peterson and uh dennis farina they had small roles in thief which uh just got the criteria on blu-ray that is a or as a birthday present a couple months ago that's a great one sponsored by criterion sponsored by no. criterion <laughs> have, have you guys gotten that sponsorship yet yeah, wait, no, wait, wait, no, no it's just back. a running joke. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> Think about it though. <laughs> Listen, Criterion, if you want me to do um a podcast just on Armageddon every week, I will do it for you. Just pay me and I'll do it. I can talk about that movie forever. It's terrible, but Arma I love it. <laughs> Armageddon actually is in the Criterion collection. That That's is not why I said it. <laughs> it's in the it's in the very first it's in the very first early days, like the late nine nineties when their mission statement was just getting and getting artistic films out there. There, Michael Bay was still regarded with some positivity, right? And not like the ironic revisionist stuff that's been circulating on film Twitter now. Now, like people actually really liked his movies. <laughs> this was before the, well, both the literal and the figurative disaster of Pearl Harbor. Ooh, Ooh. <laughs> that was that was a good one. Was super <laughs> deep. I might you know, cut it, that it, out. It, that was you. It's it's been like seventy five years now. It's okay. I'm talking about the movie, though. I mean, oh, well, yeah, that's a tragedy stuck. in itself. Mm, yeah. That's a rant for another day, though. <laughs> I really do not like that movie. Yeah. Let's bring it but back I to do Man really Hunter. like Manhunter. But I do really... Yeah, but honestly, one of the things I love about Michael... Man, I think a lot of the thing, or the main thing people love about Michael Mann is the way he is able to blend realism and style. I mean, like, the, like we see it in the show Miami Vice. We see it in crime, or in crime Story. We see it in pretty much everything he ever did for TV. Or in TV, we see or in Thief. We see it in The Insider. We see it... And even as Muhammad Ali biopic, which I still need to watch, need to watch in full. I remember seeing a bit and piece of it on TV as a kid. Anyway, my point is, um, take a movie like Heat, which is now 25 years old, but has an ounce, or lost an ounce of it, or an ounce of its impact, and still feels incredibly modern. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. Again, for a movie that is almost 25 years old. Well, it's funny when you compare his, his work on Heat to Manhunter, because Manhunter is... Definitely of its time, I think. Oh, absolutely. Because um, it, it oh, God. reeked Just that Just right those bright neon green credit green credits with the Mikhail Rubini music behind it. Oh, yeah. It, you know, it's funny. I think it, I have this the newest Blu-ray of it, the Scream Factory release. And, I want that so bad. Oh, it's so great, man. It looks really good. And they do have the director's cut of it on there. That's what I watched. But it's only like four minutes longer. Um, But... It, it's something I've always no, no, noticed no, no. is that they don't they don't seem to clean up that title card. It still looks very dirty after all these. Oh years. Yeah. yeah. Or he see it flash up and there's just this hue of green around it that's clearly not supposed to be there. <laughs> yeah, but oh my god. I mean, it's Michael. It's Man better than what I watched. Water. I watched this. It's got to be better than what I watched. Imagine because uh, I rewatched this on an old right on the old Anchor Bay uh, VHS tape from like 2001 Ooh. because I found it. I found it for like a dollar in a comic book store. I'm like, fuck it, I'm getting it. Nice. <laughs> I, I remember having a lot of Anchor Bay like DVDs as a kid, and no matter I mean, what, they not... always looked visually very bad. They were terrible at cleanup jobs. Yeah, but I think Anchor Bay put out all the Evil Dead movies, except for Army of Darkness, because those still let. I think those rights still live at Universal. Mm -hmm. I remember that when the blue, the 25th anniversary Blu-ray for Evil Dead Two came out, is that when one of the things people were talking about is this is a movie that I don't think anything is ever going to look amazing in HD. That some of the grunginess kind of needs to stay intact. I'm oh, not yeah. sure if it's the case. Yeah, with that makes stuff. sense. Because there is a lot of really pretty cinematography in it. I mean, this yeah, there is probably some of the most minimalist or things Michael Mann's ever shot. 
Also, fun fact, speaking of cinematography, this is the first time he'd collaborate with a frequent DP of his, uh, Dante Spinati. He ended up working with him on Heat, Public Enemies. Oh, really? Public, Public Enemies? Enemies? Yeah, he did Public Enemies, which is his first all-digital feature, which... Right. I, well, actually... I, I, I was referring to the cinematographer, too. Like, I, I wouldn't have guessed because that movie looks so visually different from anything else he's done. I guess. I mean, digital. it does kind of st- or in strike a chord with that or an error he was doing. Like, it does look very much like collateral or in Miami Vice. Right, yeah. Which, okay, I am very mixed on his digital era. era like, I get why he was pushing the technology forward. I really do. But some of it has really not aged well. No, no, I respect him for wanting to do that. He was definitely an early pioneer. Yeah, of and it's finally because there, there's scenes in Public Enemies that feel alive and fluid, or in fluid, especially the action. But literally anything that is a, an action scene or an outdoor shot looks terrible. Yeah, that's the thing. Is like it, it, Public Enemies. I remember seeing that on like on like HBO years and years ago, and I remember distinctly going, "This doesn't look like a movie." <laughs> uh-huh. I'm hoping, I'm hoping this looks better in a theater. If you want to know what I'm talking about, it's on Netflix right now if you want to check it out. Yeah. I I, I still need to. I will check it out on Netflix. But speaking of Chandler and uh and public enemies, we have uh, a yeah. funny story. I'll leave it to him to tell it. Well, I am there's someone also named uh Chandler with my last name. Um in the credits of public yeah. I was like, I I got I was rewatching <laughs> with my dad a couple days ago in preparation for this. Earning for this, and I'm looking at the cast list, and I'm like, wait a fucking minute, and then <laughs> I know exactly who needs to see this. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that role I did. <laughs> no. I was like, negative four years old. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the roles you didn't know you had. <laughs> I mean, I remember once when I was a kid, I found out I'm apparently a psychic, too. Like, one of those... Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> we live in a small world. Wasn't it like um when we were putting when I was putting the book up on Amazon and everything, um, I could claim it as mine and I put you as the illustrator. But for whatever reason, when we click on your name, it shows you and this other guy who's like, like a magician or something. He looks like Dean <laughs> Cain, doesn't he? Yeah, he looks like one of those nineties TV actors. Yeah, <laughs> there's so many of you out there, man. We should drop a link to the book in the uh, description. If I can get the Amazon link to work this time, I will. I know it's uh, nice. a little problematic. Yeah. I'll try. I'll I'll send it to you oh, if you need the it. The problem uh, is the links are always too long. I mean, and there's like a uh, limit on how much the bios can be. So, mm. yeah. well, hey, Back uh, to Manhunter. It's, Tale, it's Tales Under the Blood Moon by Martin Fisher with Jack Rourke. Please buy it. <laughs> I also <laughs> got another name. fun. I also got another fun project that will be revealed probably in a couple weeks once I uh once I have some or some more to show for it. Yeah, I'm, that's a, that's a get you out of the the sweat lodge that I keep you in to yep. work on that thing. <laughs> it's ha- we're halfway done on the writing that's all i'll say for now <laughs> all in nice. due time my friends all in due time all in due time anyway right all right back to uh manhunter there's also some real things to talk about in regards to real life influences with this mm-hmm. and because obviously really now we're in a lot one of the most famous thing about it is uh how uh, the relationship between will graham and hannibal lecter is very much drawn from the interviews between bill hagmeyer and uh, ted bundy interesting yep. oh yeah I remember well, there was speculation about how much that actually was, and then I think it was the director's commentary on the uh, or the Blu-ray, where you mentioned earlier that actually confirmed it. I know not, William. I know William Peterson actually did uh, or did hang around with actual Chicago PD officers for research, and uh, Michael Mann actually I think has 
that's the thing though. Again, that going back to Thief, he actually ran based that off a book by an actual professional thief. Thief, as in the guy was a consultant on set. <laughs> did a and uh, Heat was a movie he was trying to make for decades. He actually tried to make it once before as a TV movie called L.A. Takedown. Now, based off of a real de- police detective's experiences, in fact, the name of that police detective is the name of Robert De Niro's character in Heat. Oh, wow. And dude try- and tries to keep it as real as possible. I admire that. Well, I know. Make- acknowledging yeah. that he is making a movie, then so there is this distinct anti-reality to it, so he tries to make the best of both worlds, and he does so beautifully. Oh, absolutely. His combination of, um, especially in this film, of the realism with the yeah. more, um, I don't want to say fantastical, but like the um, the surreal lighting and the um, the the music, which is very poppy and very 80s. Oh, yeah. It counteracts. It's weird because like in any, uh, if handled by any other director, I feel like it would have felt out of place to have that, the very beautiful, colorful lighting and the um, the oh, use of God, the soundtrack. That shot of uh, William Peterson and his wife, uh, not shown now, and what, and what, who plays his wife again? Oh, I don't remember. Anyway, the point is, there's a really nice silhouette shot of them them sitting in their beach beach house with this pink and orange orange sky. It's just gorgeous. Oh, yeah. There there are some beautiful, like, fully saturated, colorful shots um, that really made the scene. Look, it's going to be impossible to talk about this without talking about Red Dragon since they're they're based on the same book. I think, ultimately, I love this movie, but I still have problems with, with it, and... Despite Ren Man and Red Dragon having a slightly more streamlined story and definitely a more stacked cast, I still like Manhunter more. I, I can totally get that. I was thinking yeah. on it yesterday, um, because I was thinking like, oh, maybe I should watch Red Dragon before we do this. And I was like, I've seen that movie so many times because I, out of all of um the Hannibal uh, Lecter stuff, whether it's books or movies or shows, the one that I am most knowledgeable about is the Red Dragon stuff because I've read Red Dragon, the actual book by Thomas Harris, like five times i think and it's oh wow nice. I, I really liked it and then um obviously i've seen red dragon so many times and then manhunter which was actually the last hannibal lecter thing i ever got to um well it, it feels, feels huh? kind of fitting to finish at the start doesn't it right absolutely yeah it's a nice little circle but what i noticed um going into manhunter yesterday again was that the both films kind of work as they are they make up for the weaknesses in the other where um, I think Manhunter really does a great job with um, the lead performance with Will Graham. He, um, I'm forgetting his name right now. I'm blanking. William on Peterson. It. William Peterson. Thank you. Yeah. He does such a great job getting across how much this damages his psyche. Um, exactly. Honestly, it's, it reminds me a lot of Dirty Harry in that in that movie, Harry is not a. He might be the good guy, but he's not a, a good guy. Right. Guy. As in, he's the only reason they call him Dirty Harry, and that is, is a, n- a nickname because they're little. It's like what that one friend you always will know will do stupid shit when he's drunk. Right. Mm. Always <laughs> send him after it. Right. Only it's dangerous police work instead. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And like the a definition of anti hero. Yeah. Yeah. It's very. It's an anti. Which I like. I mean, like that moral ambiguity. There's oh, yeah. Where, where I think one of the most famous scenes in the movie where the. Ren where uh, Will Ren Will's looking over the Ren the uh, autopsy footage in the home movie Ren home movie movies and stuff and he's like you had to do it to or like that and he's not Ren say Ren it almost comes off as cheesy but Ren it's Ren like he's angry there's a real anger there that honest that is quite unsettling right yeah absolutely and that's what I was saying is that like with William Peterson's performance he does a great job at getting across that Will Graham is very unhinged and that's something we don't even really see again. Um, until all the way till they did the Hannibal show, because I think 
with Red Dragon, like I really like Ed Norton. I love his performance in the movie, but he doesn't get that across as well. For him, his he's his, too clean. Yeah, he's that's too, the thing. He's too average Joe Cop. Mm, yeah. Right. Yeah. He's got that, that terrible blonde hair. But <laughs> his yeah, Graham, that it, never looked right to me. That never. It's it's very 2001. But Will Graham in that movie doesn't feel like he's on the edge of either, you know, continuing his work as an officer or falling off and becoming a psychopath. You never get that, that in Red Dragon. That actually reminds me, two of my favorite scenes are around like the middle, around the middle part, around part, the one, around what, around they kind of come at, around one after the other. The one where he's talking with his son in the grocery store, and the one where he's talking to his wife before he has to leave, leave and actually like commit himself to this case, in case and keep them safe. And like oh. the questions he brings up, especially in that grocery store, or whether or not he actually himself might be insane. It's some really heavy stuff. Well, you know, it's oh funny. yeah, very How? powerful scene. Absolutely. How pessimistic the movie does actually feel. There is a lot of hopefulness in it, which is funny. And especially in that scene with his son at the grocery store is that, you know, he's really laying it on just how much the stuff affects him. And he's being very honest with his son about it. And what I didn't catch on my first viewing, but this time I definitely saw was that when his his son kind of almost doesn't really change the subject, but he just kind of acknowledges that, okay, you have this problem, but that doesn't affect how I see you at all. You're still my dad. And can we get this by the way? You know, it's, it, yeah, it look on his face. until now, actually. Now that you mentioned that was, that was great. Yeah, it's, yeah, it is really a strong okay. moment, and I totally didn't even notice it the first yeah. time I saw the movie. And then when he's talking to his wife, him just making sure it's okay. Game, like, we've seen the scenes like this before, but th this time it actually hit. And also, got look, I'm very mixed on the soundtrack in this movie. I, mean, I remember this is one of those mo movies for years. I was joking when you made jokes about fad film music, this is one of them. <laughs> I used to agree and agree because there's some tracks in here. Look, I'm a huge 80 synth fan. Very few mm -hmm. people people will be or will or jump on or an 80 synth as much as me. But there's parts of this that even I can't listen to. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. a couple That's having been said, there is one track on, on the score that I actually do like the score a lot after rewatching re it and listening to the whole album again. Graham's theme. Dream in particular, it's mo It's this moody, dark, and dark. It's honestly the movie in a nutshell. It's this perfect mixture of horror and crime, and almost sounds like a proto Hans Zimmer type thing near the end. Yeah, totally. Yeah, oh, yeah I, I can see that. This is before Black Rain and True Romance when he was first getting his start. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, when it comes to the soundtrack, there are moments where I'm, I don't particularly like the music they use because it feels. <laughs> it's not even. That I think the music is totally bad. It's like it feels out of place in certain scenes. That's yeah. where you know you get like into that, the end like, credits. That that, no. that, that, ooh, that yeah, was that yeah. end credits yeah. song. It's it's kind of terrible and. Uh, I have it on my workout playlist. <laughs> you want, hey, you know what? That's I'm okay. Not even kidding, by the way. That's okay I mean, because I have the song that uh, what is it that Tom Newton hears when he's watching um, Rita fake make out with that one guy uh, from the doorway, the, the the strong as I am, or however it goes. Oh my gosh! <laughs> that is without a doubt, and I know it's it, it's totally cheesy. That is my favorite scene in the entire movie because it's very over the top. But what I love about it so much is that it does something that you don't see in red dragon and the other adaptation is that you get to see the world from his eyes for a moment yeah. just that how much he lies of, to himself about things that actually does remind me of one of two things or things one 
Tom Noonan might be the best performance in this mo- or in movie. Fantastic. And two, yeah. Michael yeah. Mann's always had a very strong use of music. Good God, the Moby stuff in Heat is next level good. Mm, yeah. Like I, I'm a big fan of Moby. Heat might generally be my favorite ending in all of movies. Or in, wow. Or in most, or in, oh, do we go quiet? <laughs> Igly. Anyway, yeah. But I think honestly, there's only one instance of that in the entire movie, and it's the use of Iron Butterflies in a God of Devita near the end. Oh um, yeah. The part where Tom Noon's just blowing away cops with that shotgun. <laughs> um, that, that scene. That, that, I love that they use the 17 minute long version too, or with the or with a lengthy drum follows. So, I'm just probably gonna nerd out about prog rock around this time. That's all right. It, that's I, I love that scene in particular because he's mowing down those police officers like nothing. Like he's holding that. You could tell, like in the movie, he's supposed to be. He's a very lanky kind of person, but he's got physical stature to him, like very threatening stature. And that oh, shows God. when he's able to fucking to one hand a shotgun. <laughs> it's like bam, bam, bam. It's ridiculous, but it shot all the cops. He, yeah. yeah, right. Exactly. But it works because he's got this physical presence to him. That's something that's shown throughout the movie. Like um, when you first get introduced to um, Francis Dollarhide, like actually see him for the first time, he stands up over this woman. He's like, He's like three heads above her, pretty much. And he's got this huge presence to him. And it's funny, too, because he's his character is very um, reserved. He, he Newton does this great thing in his performance where he keeps like covering his lip because he doesn't want his, his cleft uh, lip to show. Mm, yeah. So he yeah. keeps covering it. And I didn't notice it a whole lot on my first watch, but this time I saw it was, you know, every time he's trying to talk with somebody, he covers it up. And even when he's talking with Rita, who he knows is blind, he still covers his face up and he still hides away from her. And I was gonna say, so honestly, this might this might sound either basic or a little off or, or well off face, but the performances where work reminds me of most is Javier Bardem and No Country for Old Men. Mm. And then this guy is clearly a very reserved, very cold and cut off psychopath. But there are moments where you, where you think there is something in fight inside him telling where that where that's t- informing him he has to do this and not he wants to that there's something he just cannot connect with other people in a way that isn't violent. Oh, wow! Definitely. Yeah, I could, I could see that. Yeah, I thought that... Uh, Rita. I thought her performances was one of the best, like minor yeah. characters in this movie. Yeah. Also, and if anyone's wondering, uh, in case you know, or in Tom Noonan, uh, or he also, or he worked with Charlie Kaufman. He's worked with Michael Mann before. He was in, or in afterwards, and he, when he showed up in RoboCop Two, Mystery Train, Heaven's Gate, Last Action Hero. Hero guy's got a solid filmography. Mind him, and uh, he was also uh, literally every other character in Anomaly, so besides uh, David Thwellis and uh, Jennifer Jason Lee. <laughs> this is something I love that detail so much, and not oh, yeah. just because it's a funny idea, because it actually does work to make the movie stronger and helps increase the sense of isolation. This is something I've stood by since I saw Manhunter. I'm like, Tom Noonan has had an amazing filmography, but also I just want him to be in different, different variety too. Oh, absolutely. That's what I love about it. But also, I'm like, I want him in everything though now. Because <laughs> now that I've seen Manhunter, I'm like, I want him in every movie possible. Even now that he's like uh, almost 70 or something, I still yeah. want him and everything because he's fantastic. Yeah, there, I mean, still. George Miller made Mad Max or in his 70 or in Mad Max Fury Road when he was 70, so very true. You no, know, stranger things have happened. That's all right. We got a sequel to Blade Runner that was as good as the original, if not better. Yeah, Anything yeah. can happen now. <laughs> Anything can happen. Yeah, well, yeah. I'll take it. <laughs> oh, um, speaking of because you did bring up um, how. Francis Dollarhide, Tom Noonan's character, is constantly at war with like the voice in his head, essentially telling him he needs to do something even though he doesn't want to. 
there is the really great scene after he's had um, his what I assume is his first ever sexual experience that isn't rape because he was raped by his mother very clearly um, is that he uh, when he sleeps with um, Rita for the first time. And there's that moment when they're in bed together, she's asleep and he kind of takes her hand while she's sleeping and he covers his mouth and he starts to cry outside of the really bad song. They chose to use for that scene. Um, his... yeah, I think the score itself is when it works. I mean, it works. Uh, it's the sound. I think the score works. I mean, going back to what I said earlier, it's the soundtrack stuff that I'm more mixed on. What was it? I thought it was a soundtrack, uh, bit. I think, think it's just the score and the score from what I remember. I did. Well, maybe maybe it was different in the director's cut. I don't. Remember. It could have been different. I don't know because I, I saw the director's cut. But I, the only thing I thought was different in the director's cut is, um, is that you could see very clearly what scenes were added in that were supposed to be in the movie that were How cut because they were not cleaned cut? up. It's like four minutes longer, and really, I don't think you need to see it because the so scenes it's like that the are Iron Giant extended cut, where it literally only adds, or where the scene it adds is kind of important, important, but it doesn't affect or affect the overall movie too much. Not, I wouldn't even say they're very important because I watched them and they're all kind of scenes where it's like you would get the point anyway without needing to see them. Um, yeah. One is like a, a briefing scene with like all the police all in like one room, um, just kind of like laying out everything we already know and everything that we see. Like they explain like his teeth that he has, like because, you know, towards the end of the movie, like where he puts the or when he's with Freddie Lowndes, too, he puts that fa those fake teeth in his mouth. He puts uh, those dentures in. They lay out like, oh, he 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 has this other the, the, these incisors. Look at this. Yes. This is weird. And then that's about it. And then the other scene is like he talks with his wife briefly about like, um, and, and that's probably the best scene I think that was included is him talking with his wife on the phone um, before he gets to see her again, essentially. And um, he they're they're trying to have a banal conversation about like, oh, well, how should I paint this room? What color should it be? And he's like, why do you think I care right now? And then you know, he kind of explodes at her and he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I did that. It's going to show like how this is starting to affect him, his personality yeah. and everything. Um, and then there's one more at the very end of the movie, which I totally get why they cut because it feels very, it feels like too much. And it's a scene where um, I believe he goes to see the family that Dollar Hyde was going to attack next like they were the next people he was going through and he like talks to them he's just like i just i just want to come by and make sure you're all okay and he said he doesn't say it like that that's very on the nose but it's <laughs> clearly what he's trying to do and it yeah. just all the scenes that are in the director's cut don't feel necessary to the actual movie and i think they could have just been like extra, extra scenes on the blu-ray yeah exactly and i think that's probably what maybe they have been before i don't know shout uh, shout factory in general does this thing where they do yeah. do the regular cuts of the movies and then they do extended or director's cuts that are either they're clean and you won't even notice or they're totally messy and you can tell what scenes are still in there because they didn't they weren't because the whatever the original film pieces were just weren't kept well so they're scratchy and beat up oh, okay and yeah folding in but that um, happens because stuff gets stored in vault or in vaults and gets forgotten about over time right so, yeah and i, I guarantee everything is the best preserved yeah exactly and i guarantee you know nosferatu was almost completely lost to history if it weren't for one prince i think that was found in a coal mine god that would have been insane if we lost god. that movie but yeah and especially like history would have been right and i especially like the dino de Laurentiis company i don't think they yeah. really cared to keep things that uh -huh. they didn't want to need yeah, you know? yeah. That, he, that makes sense he's the he, he, dino de Laurentiis, he was a great producer but he was a huge penny pincher and not exactly he's basically perfect. what if he's basically what if Manaham golan actually well did or actually had some restraint or <laughs> actually like better stuff right and like i'm gonna fund everything which in a way i respect but also and that's kind of that's we're not even risk taking I mean, that's literally just all in motherfuckers <laughs> we're not every poker game you play right 
he made some interesting decisions, even with this movie he did, because yeah. um, there is that whole thing of like... Brand, I know he produced a lot. I think he produced Flash Gordon at the beginning of the decade. I'm not. Uh, yeah, he produced Flash Gordon. He produced that really strange 70s King Kong remake and uh, the sequel I to am, that. Yeah. yeah. I don't mm -hmm. even hate that movie. Wow. It's just... I got. I didn't like it as a kid, and uh, I think I was right at the time. It's just boring. That's it. There's nothing really That's bad about it. It's just boring. <laughs> yeah, I do like Jeff Bridges though. And Jeff, we, oh, Jeff Bridges. And this gave Jeff Jessica Langer starts. So anyway, there's good things that come out of it. But anyway, there's the whole thing with um, like, why is this movie even called Manhunter? I mean, Which, and it, huh? probably because they wanted something to easier to sell the movie on. But well, I know good. why. I know right. why. Yeah, Red Red. I don't know. Maybe because Red Red, Red Drag. And Dragon doesn't sound I mean, like a crime movie. And uh, Year Michael Cimino's Year of the Dragon came out like the year before, right before, and uh, that tanked. So that's the thing, Jack. That is the, mm. the heavily believed thing is that because he had produced Year of the Dragon the year before and it crashed and burned, he didn't want to have another movie with the word dragon in it. <laughs> so he changed it to Manhunter. <laughs> Speaking of D.L.O.D. Laurentis and uh, switching around with directors, uh, David Lynch almost made this. When, really? And, uh, oh boy. But this, and I have some uh, more things to say about that. He he didn't want to direct it because he thought this story was, and I quote, violent and completely degenerate. <laughs> Bear in mind, this is the wow. same year he made Blue Velvet. Wow, and God, Frank Booth honestly might be more of a sadistic sociopath than anything Tom Noonan does in this. <laughs> I know, right? That's hilarious. Oh my God. I, I think I, I read that because I, I, I did a, like a, two years ago, I did like a video on Manhunter, like Manhunter has like an adaptation of the book. And in my deep dive of research, I did stumble upon, I think I did stumble upon the David Lynch thing and him saying like he was, he found the story so grotesque and violent. I'm just like, this is David Lynch. <laughs> I, I'm not even going to call him a hypocrite. I just think it's hilarious. Right. I, I think he just didn't want to do it, and he just wanted to get an excuse yeah. not to do I, it. I, I think it's because he didn't want to do more mainstream movies, because this was right after Dune. Or in Dune, how that yeah. all crashed and burned for, for a lot of reasons. I mean, we'll yeah. get to that, because we are going to be talking about Dune in December, if, if uh, Denis Villeneuve's version is still going to come out in December. Fingers crossed. I mean, yeah. Maybe, maybe we'll get Tenet by December. Hopefully. <laughs> but, uh, okay, um... There is something I wanted to bring up with Tom. I, I always thought I keep talking about Tom Noonan because I think he's fantastic in this movie. I mean, I don't blame um, you. You can't. You really can't take your eyes off him, if you, even when you uh, you really want to. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> he's literally a, anyone else. It, he's such a great role. But it's funny is that it brings up another thing too, where he is. It, it brings up another comparison with Red Dragon, the uh, the uh, directed by insert person here. Uh, <laughs> I think Brett Ratner's a little off the table now. Um, yeah, pretty was, much. Yeah. So um, what I've noticed is that bringing it back to um, how both films kind of complement each other is that Tom Noonan has the much better performance as Francis Dollarhide, I think, than um, Ray Fiennes. Uh, Ray Fiennes does in Red Dragon. But I think Ray Fiennes does have the better material. And I don't mean to say that what Tom Newton has is bad, but I think his version of Francis is given more time to breathe and more time to be more about of a well-rounded character. Both him and Hannibal Lecter have way less screen time than I remember. Oh, yeah. We don't I even see Francis for like the hour mark. A strong impression is because why I remember them being in more of the movie. Like right. Hannibal, I knew was going to be mostly a background present. I didn't know he just left the movie right past like the hour mark. I didn't know. He was... <laughs> yeah, and I think that's because yeah, I do like Brian Cox a lot as Hannibal. Oh, he's not, great. obviously not as good as as Anthony Hopkins, but let's just say yeah. no one could. Yeah. 
no, nobody can outstage Anthony Hopkins, except I mean, if you go for a more solid performance like they did with the Hannibal Show. But I yeah, obviously which, was, round two. which was great. I oh, I, I loved it. Yeah, it's I, it's beautiful. I am behind on so much TV. Let me let me put it this way: Will Graham, I think, is the most interesting character in the Lecter mythology. And to see a full show dedicated to him and his relationship with Hannibal Lecter, I think is a lot more interesting. And I like that they they pretty much went three seasons long doing the whole Will Graham story from beginning to end. And speaking I love of uh, TV. Oh, yeah. Graham, I'd be willing to uh, rewatch it. Speaking of TV and Will Graham, Graham, that reminds me of William Peterson is one of those guys who often gets typecast. Like he got this role based off To Live and Die yeah. in LA, which, speaking of Shout Factory again, I still need to get that <laughs> Blu ray. Because To Live and Die in L.A. is one of the best 80s crime movies, possibly one of the best, period. And uh, if you like the ending of Uncut Gems, this is even more serial killer ice cold than that was. Hmm. I've been meaning to see that. By the way, Shot Factory. Shot Factory. I'm not on this podcast a lot. I'm on for one episode right now. But if you guys guys want to sponsor Warp Celluloid, please do it. Um, Because, uh, yeah. I mean, we'll happily take it. Yeah, Uh, they'll they'll take it. They'll be happy. I appreciate that. I'll just stock them up with every Scream Factory release you got, please. I mentioned uh, William Peterson getting typecast as cops so much because mm-hmm. uh, his most famous role outside of this, if you're and if you're listening to this and you're not very movie oriented, he was Gus Grissom on CSI for like 15 years. <laughs> oh, that's which uh, go, which almost feels fitting typecast. because Michael Ma- Miami Vice and Crime Store were very much the progenitors to the Dick and Wolf Law and Orders or in CSI that. That whole type of crime and schism of crime shows. Yeah, it, it, oh God, I, I need to watch Miami Vice. I've, I've seen the, the, the movie. Uh, movie. The show. I've seen the movie. I'm mixed on the movie. On the movie, like it's dev- like pretty much everything Michael Mann does. Or does film Twitter is kind of latched onto this this kind of cult like perseveration. But right, I like the show more than the movie. I, I saw the pilot that Michael Mann directed for Miami Vice, and I liked it. I really did enjoy it, and it's got a lot of his style to it. It reeks of the 80s, and I love it so much. Yeah. Mm, the yeah. movie is also, I think the movie is good, but... It's better I, as an exercise in style, I mean, style yes. and idea, because it doesn't really have a coherent story. That's the thing, is like it's it feels like it's missing a central compelling narrative because the actual story itself is not very interesting. It's like I was going to say, there's stretches in the middle that I really like, like the, everything involving Colin Farrell and... Uh, What's her name? Fuck, I'm sorry. I keep forgetting people's names. <laughs> where, like that, where, there's a whole stretch where I'm thinking, Michael Mann should do a romance. Oh, yeah. Uh, where, like, the way he shoots it, where, it's, just so te- where, it's just so tender and light, where, and light and lush, and like, oh, like, I loved him to shoot something in, like, where, in Italy, where, in Italy, or like coast, where, in coastal California. Right. Well, yeah, that's the thing. It's like Michael Mann, you know, uh, uh, now, now I imagine Italy reminds me, uh, he is still doing that Enzo Ferrari biopic now that I mention it. Oh, mm. that's right. I totally forgot oh, about that. He also produced a Ford v Ferrari recently, which probably oh, the really? best dad movie that I've seen in a long time. Probably, I think the I think the <laughs> best one before that was like Rush, which both are racing movies, but both really bad movies. I don't think Michael Mann was involved with that. Uh, though I know he w- did Black Hat recently, which I'm still needing to get check off my list. I'm probably gonna check out director's cut that's been going around. Black Hat is pretty good. It felt very it it didn't work when it came out. I think because it came out at a very bad time. It was like 2015, it and was it was January too. Oh yeah, that's that's another thing. And here's the thing too: is like I I remember seeing the the trailer for the movie, and go like I want to see that, and it just totally came and disappeared from the box office. Nobody saw it. Mm. And I mean, at least it's not as bad as what happened with Morgan, which literally debuted at or that movie. I think maybe one of Ridley Scott's or any kid. Yeah, that debuted that literally debuted at number seventeen. 
Ah, uh, that still bums me out because I do. Or Under the Silver Lake. Like Under the Silver Lake. Well, that's a completely different case entirely because that, that movie got screwed. Screening in New <laughs> oh, yeah. Anywhere outside of New York and L.A. For it is always New York and L.A. That's right. Well, not anymore. <laughs> well, it, that's the thing is like with Black Hat, I, I definitely recommend you see it. It is a good, well-made movie. Visually speaking, it still has its problems with the digital filmmaking. Um, it still at times looks a little too not even made for TV. And I get that's what he was intending was to make something that looks almost like a newscast, like a, you know, filming on the spot kind of thing, but it does affect certain scenes. And the whole reason I even wanted to see in the first place was that the guy who plays the main villain in that movie, I've met him in person. He's a friend of my dad's and I was right. Yeah. I was like, and I heard his voice in the movie. I'm like, wait a second. I know that voice. And then I saw the movie. I'm like, Oh my God, it's him. And he was also in a, his name's York. I forget it. I, I can't pronounce his last name for the life of me. That but reminds me of a, I'll still earn a, of a story I have of me meeting someone famous and then not realizing until what or until later, but I'll say that for off the mic. <laughs> well, yeah. And he was also in girl, with the dragon tattoo. He was the, um, which, which one, the, or the one with the uh, newbie repost or the David Fincher one, the David Fincher one. He was, um, ah. he was, um, the, uh, Elizabeth's, uh, guardian or whatever the one that assaults her <laughs> uh yeah he ooh. he's an excellent actor not a lot of things but he's excellent and um but anyway back to manhunter let's bring it back around to manhunter yeah yeah anyway i, I wanted can... to bring back the music and the cinematography mm-hmm. it's weird to me that some people think red dragon is a better looking movie when i think that's a movie that i have it has that problem it has that problem of um or in, a, or in a early 2000s, or in movies where it's that ugly steel blue look to it. Yeah. That only, I think, Minority Report made look work. I, I think the main driving force because behind people saying that it is a better-looking film, Red Dragon, is because they're connecting it with Sons of the Lambs and Hannibal. And yeah. it definitely has yeah. more of those um, stylistic choices, because it's a lot more gothic. Because that was the thing about that specific trilogy of films, is they, were, they applied more of a gothic tone and yeah. look to the entire series. The, the Man- style that Hannibal Lecter is in in Silence of the Lambs looks like something out of Arkham Asylum. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. What Asylum, first of all, would ever yeah, do that now? <laughs> Compare that to the cell here, which, actually, I believe they filmed it in an art museum. Oh, mistaken. I totally believe that. I mean, the exterior's definitely look at, but the actual cell interiors, that looks not only realistic, but really impo- imposing, a really good, really strong use of white, or just like, fl- and flush everything out. It also I, makes uh, William Peterson's character stand out right now with the cost. This is why I, I'm such a nerd for good costume and productionism. Uh, right. Is that it, or that Hannibal Lecter's all dressed in white, everything else is white, Will Graham is the only thing that stands out. It is clear he is not in, or he is not the one in control. Oh, absolutely. And that's kind yeah. of terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, and um, speaking of that scene, I love um, there is a great comparison between like directorial chases with the Hannibal Lecter movies. Is that if you remember in Sons of the Lambs with um, Jodie Foster's character, when she starts to have a panic attack, we don't see her getting to the car, we essentially just see her in the car and then breaking down. And in this, in Manhunter, you know, Will Graham is starting to fall apart after he talks with Lecter and he's trying to get out. And you watch the whole process of him trying to get out of that art museum, essentially, where he's mm-hmm. running every single flight of stairs and you kind of yeah yeah you feel like the 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 what he's going through in that moment you really feel like he can't he needs to breathe and he can't because he's in such a confined constricted space and then when he goes outside i love that bit where he's just staring at the grass to calm himself down he's trying to find some sense of normalcy in the world yeah it's beautiful that was a a great sequence I mentioned the when that when the two scenes earlier where he's talking about when to his wife and son and uh this when just that little moment of him staring out the window as it's rain, rain raining taking in his last bit of when moment of free time 
trying to collect himself before that, and just having that score just linger in the back background in the rain and the way and the lights reflect. And it's such a gorgeous shot. All right, shot. Oh, it's a really yeah. it's a really good small little moment. Oh yeah, um, this there, there are a lot of those great ones. Like that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, this whole God, movie. Just that, that. <laughs> just that opening shot. I don't mean like the right, the found footage type opening thing, but it's because before the titles. I mean like that sh that pan down across right, to the to uh, William Peterson, and Dennis Farina sitting on that right, right on that piece of wood on the beach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was beautiful. There's only there's a couple scenes that do that specific setup um that framing device where they've got the two characters sitting on something, but they're totally uh frame opposite from each other. It's good blocking. It's what it is. It's not just cinematography. That's good. Yeah, it's just good blocking in general. There is one character I do want to mention just because not even that I think Absolutely that's a very good there's not even a very good performance. I don't I don't want to say bad, but it's like it's not a standout, but it's so strange when you think about who the actor is. Is Stephen Lang is in this movie? I and was he about looks to nothing say, like Stephen Lang. I, I was about to say I'm gonna say he's who the first he? guy uh Dollarhide kills off. He's Freddie the reporter. It's also funny you mentioned him since okay, we literally yeah. talked about the men who stare at goats last week. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And, oh. and he's hilarious. <laughs> And, really like, and this, he is quite the opposite. <laughs> yeah, he's a scumbag in this movie. But I love I, his performance is so Don't, strange when you consider all of his other movies that he's done more, more it's recently. Weird with hair too, or yeah. like that young, like Stephen Lang's one of those guys like Scott, where you or, or um, fuck what Tommy Lee Jones, where he just always kind of looked old. Yeah, right. yeah. Like, yeah, that's the Tommy thing. Tommy Lee Jones even looked old when he was young. <laughs> like, look at like Eyes of Laura Mars, where he still looks like yeah, you look like somebody's dad. I, I oh, watched I mean, that recently, I'm not yeah. disrespect Tommy Lee Jones. I love Tommy Lee Jones. I, I just like that thing. That's one of the things that makes him distinct. Right, yeah. Oh, no, I, I watched that movie recently. I was like, oh, my God, he still looks like he's, like, Speaking 50. Of which, imagine. It's 1970. God. One of my dreams uh, when I retire is to form, like, a new Beverly or draft house place where I just show old or in old movies and program double bills. I'd love to program a double bill of this in Eyes of Laura Mars. Oh, that would be fantastic. Yeah. Spe speaking of which, uh, fun fact about that, that's one of the few movies John Carpenter wrote but didn't direct. That's why I watched it, because I love John Carpenter. <laughs> it was the, that and Black Moon Rising. Um, oh, yeah, I totally forgot about that one. Black Moon Rising, I still need to get around to. It's pretty good. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I do remember really enjoying it. Is and that John Carpenter? Uh, he wrote, he, John Carpenter wrote it, but I don't think he directed it. Okay, nice. I, I'm, I'm not too familiar with his, his filmography, but I need yeah. to get around to we'll it. We'll probably yeah. be doing a deep dive on that for Halloween. Trust me. Oh okay. yeah, we have like the whole uh, month of October. We know, have the rest of the year back. planned out, basically. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> if you guys ever want me to come back on and talk about Rob Zombie movies, I'll be here all week. Um, <laughs> I'm one of his few champions. <laughs> I'm fascinated by Rob Zombie. Like I don't. I mean, he does, never makes coherent movie no. movies. But he makes fascinating movies. Good guy. Absolutely. Halloween 2 is not, I will never defend that as a good movie, at least, whatever the hell that mean, means, but it is a movie I cannot stop thinking about whenever it gets brought up in conversation. Uh, I, oh my god, I love that movie so much. It's not a good movie. No, it is not. But I do like Devil's Rejects, though. So unique. And oh, I Devil's love Rejects. that fake trailer no, he did for right. House. Which, oh, the, right. the, the, the SS, Where, the, werewolf the werewolf woman of the SS. And Nicolas Cage is the man shoe. Which, <laughs> Oh, I, I I will give him the benefit of the doubt. Is I think he does he gets how to do the grindhouse style better than anybody else, and I don't mean that as like because I love the grindhouse like 
actual double feature. You get they to did. earn it beyond just film and gr- film grain and cheesy voiceovers. Right. Yeah. It's just it's part it's of its style. It's not just style. It's the whole adi- It's the attitude, which is I think one of the things I think a lot of people miss when it comes to homage. Which like I like Kung Fury and all that kind of stuff and stuff, but it's very much the this is made to sell t retro ironic t-shirts right it's it's mm. too wink wink you get it you get what we're doing do you see what we're doing hey look at what we're doing you know yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what i like about zombies filmography is they even when his movies aren't very good he does do a good job at respecting yeah. what he's trying to do and like the genre he's playing homage to anyway <laughs> got off on a rob zombie tangent can i get off on another tangent by the way sure why not? awesome i listened to your vanilla sky episode yesterday yeah, yeah I texted. One, I feel like it was kind of a missed opportunity because there's so much stuff I wanted to talk about that I just didn't even mention. I, I texted Jack yesterday after I listened to him, like, "Oh, you guys should have had me on because I could have made that episode go another 50 minutes." Dude, cause... if I known you've been that big of a fan of a movie, I would have had you on in the heartbeat. We should do a, a part two. Yeah, I would love I'm not, to do. A I'm not against that. I mean, I still yeah. want to do another or a part two on Under the Silver Lake too. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, but what Vanilla Sky? I, I saw that movie when I was 13, way too young to watch it to get I, everything out yeah. of it. But even at that age, oh, I did. I watched it with my dad. He's the one that showed it to me. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Here, here, frame of reference is my my dad was like very much not the person who's like, oh, you shouldn't watch it because it's too adult. He's like, oh, you're six years old. Let's watch Friday the 13th. I wish my dad, like I didn't start watching R-rated movies until I was 12. Like I remember when it was, when my first three were Aliens, the original Dawn of the Dead, and The World's End. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Nice. Well, it was funny because like I think back on like being raised and everything and like, my dad would show me movies that I'm like, I should have never seen these films when I was a kid. Like I remember, I would think I was seven and my favorite movie was full metal jacket. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And I totally ignored all the, like the actual like message and impact of that film. Which is like, Oh, it's a cool war movie. And there's that guy who shoots himself in the head halfway through. It's great. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah. So I had seen vanilla sky when I was 13. Totally. You know, you don't get full impact of relationships in the, uh, yeah. life in general at that age but i remember still like at that end scene when the movie ended i was tearing up a little bit yeah. and every time i've watched it since i still tear up and obviously the yeah. older you get the more i think that movie resonates with your life you know you start to see connections to it and i get the criticism that yeah it is a tom cruise vehicle absolutely well, but I- honestly that's why i like tom cruise is that he's, <laughs> one of those, he's one of the few movie stars that actually likes to play with his persona a little bit I mean, yeah, obviously he's tight. Ty- I mean, cast is basically Tom Cruise, but he at least I mean, tries to, if not question that, at least I mean, at least work around it. Like, right. He, he doesn't take himself too seriously, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, he's able to. Good God! I mean, the fact that he even played Les Gro- I mean, Lev Grossman in um, *Tropic Thunder*. Shows that he has <laughs> oh my gosh! Level. Yeah. That's amazing performance. Anyway. <laughs> I, I like that in, in that film it's it is definitely this is tom cruise but what i like is that he's not afraid to put himself in that situation where he's not a good character in that movie he's not a good person okay there's times where he plays completely unlikable scumbags like magnolia yeah. was in front of the same really tj Mackey is an absolute dick oh yeah great character <laughs> though yeah, um, but I love that movie so much because there's so much about it that I feel connected with and I get. And I also, I what was that brought tra- up, I remember. Huh? Right, that track, right, there's, right, speaking of great soundtracks, Where Do I Begin by the Chemical Brothers from that movie has been in my t- in head for like the last month now. Such a great thing. that The song that they play at the end of the film, like in the final scene, the I forget how to pronounce the band's name, Sigour Ross song. The um, It's like a, the... It's the song that plays, I think, um, as he's jumping off and you, you see that montage. Yeah. 
Yeah, the, I see. Cameron Crowe was so dedicated to trying to get that song into the film because the band themselves, I don't think I've ever actually recorded that song. It was played one time at a concert and someone recorded it on their phone. And that's the recording that they play in the movie. Is that wow. Recording from like I imagine that was not a very good recording because this is like 2001. So oh, God, no. You listen to the song itself and it sounds terrible just because the recording's so bad. But in the movie, they're able to mask it just enough where it sounds tolerable. <laughs> that's good. But, and that's what a good sound mixing does. That's impressive, you. right? Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I love that movie. And also, I was waiting for you guys to bring him up, but you never brought him up. There is a surprise Michael Shannon in that movie. Wait, what? You forgot the security where? guard. I, I was going to say, I'm like, I, I actually forgot about that. I'm like, I thought I made a note of that, or that but I didn't mention. Yeah, the security guard uh, with uh, Kurt Russell. Yeah, that's Michael Shannon, like way early Michael Shannon. I'm gonna say I'm, I'm like, oh wait, now you're no, you're right, you're right. I forgot. Shit, I should have brought that up. <laughs> we should do a We're part gonna, two. Right? Yeah, let's do a part two. I would we, love to be a part of that. We should probably do a special episode dedicated to weird shit Michael Shannon shows up in the background in because there's a lot more than you expect. Oh yeah, he he he's, he's a real in creeper. Kangaroo Jack for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Nah, that's a strange movie. Anyway, let's bring this back to Manhunter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Manhunter. I, I love this. I, have, I love this. Going back to the music for Manhunter again, because look, I just, I'm such an... I don't know a lot about music. Look, I haven't played guitar since I was in middle school or in school, but I do have a good appreciation for sound mixing and that kind of stuff. Now, like, when I was looking into research for the soundtrack, uh, Pink Floyd's Comfortably Numb was an inspiration for a few of the... for the bit of the score. Really? Yeah. Ooh, and wow. re-listening to Graham's theme and a couple other tracks, like, Oh my God, you're right. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I hear this. I hear the resemblances now. I, okay. Yeah, I could totally get that. That's, that is one of the inspiration only instances where I'm fine with temp music. Where it leads to something interesting instead of the derivative. Because right. music now, right. Even someone is, who is ed- admittedly repetitive and by his own admission, of course, is Daniel. I mean, hates, hates, hates temp music. Do you think that would be true if they like temp music, but it's his own music on a movie? Who knows? Like temping him to score for himself. By the I way, mean, we need more. We need more Danny Elfman soundtracks nowadays because he barely anyway, does anything, and when he does, it's not yeah. very memorable because they don't really do okay. anything. Did you see the Fifty Shades of Grey movies recently? Because I, I, I have seen no that idea. And I was like, "What? That's I don't okay. That's strange." Yeah. <laughs> Why would first of all, why would Danny Elfman do that? Second of all, why would you money. get Danny Elfman for that? <laughs> money. True, that is true. That's. I, I think he also Give scored. I, he he had to have scored Tim Burton's Dumbo movie. He had to have because it's Tim mm. Burton. Yep. <laughs> That's the thing. Is like he did. And also, it's funny that we mentioned temp music and Danny Elfman because of uh, his score for Justice League. Oh yeah. Which speaking of which, and director's cut to kind of have it circular around. Yeah. I'm not sure if I mentioned this already, but we finally got the snu- we're finally getting the Snyder cut. I know, I'm right? so happy. I I will be honest with you. I never thought it would happen, and if it did, we. Would I be like, I was always like, look, I'm not gonna hold my breath over it. If it happens, right. it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Right, I'm just happy, and it doesn't that they're letting him finish it. Yeah, and I hope it's two things. I'm happy we got it because I was seriously expecting like a Donner cut situation where you don't see that version for 20, like 20 years, years later. Yeah. Or if we were going to get it, it was not going to be, how should I say this? If we were going to get it, it wasn't going to be Snyder's completed version. Like, like, it was, a, work, yeah. like a work print. Like a work print, exactly. That's what I figured we would probably get. But no, they're putting some serious cash into it. So I admire that. I, I admire that a lot. I hope if there's one thing I want them to do to change it, because I know it was supposed to lead into 
uh, another Hulk movie, trilogy, which oh. I think was actually reworked before Justice League started pre-production. I hope so because if if that's the case, I would love. I want Justice League because there's not. I listen. I if it is super successful, good. I don't think they're ever going to want to do another follow-up just because. Oh of God, the, no. Yeah, just because of everything surrounding this, I don't think they want to ever do something like that again. That and I'm, I'm, I have to imagine Zack Snyder has other projects he wants to work uh, yeah, on. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Army of the Dead is still, or is still, I think in post now. Right, right now, yeah. he wants to do that. He wants to do that. Right, that, uh, right, that Afghanistan uh, drama, the last photograph. He's yeah. Still, to my knowledge, that right, remake of the Fountainhead is still on board. Yeah, yeah. Ayn Rand. Zack Snyder doing Ayn Rand is going to be that's going to be a trip. Oh Absolutely. yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, so I hope with this one, they if they do make changes to it, I would just like it to be like it feels like a finale in ways because that's the yeah. way I always viewed these movies that he I did. Figured, like because Man of Steel, Ernest Steel has earned his birth, and then Batman vs Superman's death, right. and this will be the rebirth. Right, exactly. That, I always, that makes sense as a trilogy for me. Yeah, I, and I always I viewed it that way. In the last week when we see of Henry Cavill as Superman, though. You hope what? I hope that we see more of Henry Cavill as Superman in future. I hope so too. I'm not. I, I get why he's probably. They're probably taking a break on Superman in general for a little while. But I hope when they do start kicking up that character again, they just bring Cavill's version back. Um, yeah. But yeah. I do want Justice League to feel like a finale. I do want it to feel like this is the end of Zack Snyder's trilogy of Superman-centric films. Tenure. Yeah, and his tenure. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm very they're, excited for that. They aren't going to be reshooting anything for the uh, director's cut, are they? Nope. I mean, just I mean, just some ADR, I mean, just some ADR and a few and a few uh, vi- and revised visual effects shots, like how uh, in the original trailers, all, right, the sky and the climax look very dark, right, but in the Comic Con trailer, it looks very bright red and orange. Mm, yeah, that was just Whedon change, and look, the less we say about that, the better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I can see that. I didn't mind the red sky thing, but uh, I don't know. I, I don't either. It's just it was a stylistic choice, else right? Everything else he added was obviously was a just Whedon. Yeesh. Anyway. Remember the Russian family? <laughs> oh god! Oh my gosh! Whenever, <laughs> whenever directors change halfway through production, it usually never works out. Yeah, I think the only time that worked out was War Games, with uh, Matthew Broderick, because that was originally supposed to be. Uh, I think uh, Martin Brest, the guy who did Beverly Hills Cop, but they switched to John Batham because he I mean, it was clear Brest and was didn't get the tone, and I think it was his. I don't I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but I think he was one. Of, he also wanted to step down himself because he. And get a right feel for it, but that's the only time I think switching to rain records during production has ever worked. I can't think of any occurrence where that's really turned out for the better. Um, there's a that's couple the, that's why I bring up war games, it's the only one I can think of. It's the and ironically, it's from the 80s. Yeah, I, I, can only, I can only I can only think of other examples. <laughs> this is before film journalism absolutely went to hell, right? <laughs> yeah, I, mean, yeah, I was I about looking behind the production, not just endless speculation. In relation and what and wondering what and what in your favorite is problematic. Because <laughs> a lot of that stuff in, in is like just the snake eating its own tail. Mm, yeah. so, right. so it's so insular that I just kind of bounce off it. Like that's why I I ran a blog and ran a film blog in high school. In which I the last time I wrote for it was ironically about the Snyder kind of why people were and why people bitching about it just made no sense to me because you mentioned again going back to Manhunter the direct. Which was what we're supposed to be talking about. About, <laughs> about uh, even if it's not better than at least it's nice to have on hand. Well, for the sake of right. comparison, and but like the special edition of Close Encounters is definitely a weaker film because you, because seeing inside the spaceship does not add what I think Spielberg th- thought it added. Mm. One of the situations yep. where mystery was preferable, but it's at least nice to know that and be and then see that available. Right. 
it's for the pre- I like it for just for the sake of preservation, honestly. Oh yeah, absolutely, and that's why I admire you know uh, home video companies that are willing to go the extra mile and get director's cuts out there, even if like visually it's not going to look clean and crisp. They at least yeah. want you to have that version. That's why I'm super hopeful to get more um, scenes that were cut out of Event Horizon for their special release. I'm just like. I know we're never going to get that director's cut, but could you please just get some of those scenes that we have? At least get seen some that. of the footage on, where it's like an extra on a Blu-ray. Right, exactly. I don't care if it looks like a, a salt mine in itself because that's where it's probably stored. Yeah. I just want to. Why see did they it. always and, store it in there? Where it is in mines? Is what I'm wondering. That's I don't why I, I don't know why that's even the first thing you think of to store your film reels in. Like why a salt mine? Why not just on the studio lot or in this back house that you have? You know, just to save space, honestly. But there has to be better. There have to be better places than a frig than a friggin' salt mine. All right, I think that's changing nowadays. Of course, with digital filmmaking, of course, you don't really need to store it anywhere except on a flash drive or um, the cloud. The, the cloud, exactly. Oh, flash drive. That's too. That's too. That's too early. Twenty tens now. It's the cloud now. Um, so it's not much of a problem. But I know with film reels themselves, at least before the two thousands, studios weren't exactly concerned about that. So it's like if they would have probably burned it if they could. <laughs> yeah, just to, for warmth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we need to keep the PAs warm. Burn the film reels. <laughs> um, I know that's pretty much why a lot of movies made before 1950 are pretty much impossible to find. Yeah, there's a lot of um, Lon Chaney movies, especially that were just burned. London After burned. Midnight is, I, to my knowledge, the considered the holy grail of lost films. Yes, everyone wants to. Everyone's all looking. that exists from it is a couple posters and some stills, and maybe I don't even think people know what it was about. If I'm not mistaken, the actual. I. Th- think it had to oh my god no uh, the plot is out there the plot is available but you don't have any film you just get to see the set photos and some promotional right. stills and that's it um that's it, it's not a horror movie i think is what i heard it's not well, a horror film like at all it looks like a horror movie everything about point. it looks like a horror movie the time which is weird to me yeah i think it's like a i believe it's like a mystery film it's not even a horror movie that's just strange because you know you think lon chaney a senior you think of horror but Whatever. Anyway, I get what you're saying when it comes to having director's cuts at least available, yeah. or any kind of cut where you have those removed scenes at least available to the public. Like, I think the only time Michael Mann had his, like, Kingdom of Heaven, or Blade Runner, where, the, where a director's cut has reworked the movie, is the one that's been going around for uh, Black Hat. Yeah, I've well, been hearing yeah. that. He actually does, the one, or in the one that's presently available now, for as long as I can, I still, I'm very glad I got the Blu-ray a couple years ago, because I looked online, cannot find it at all. Ugh. Which one, is a bummer. One director's cut that I love over the original, and I think it's um, an essential cut, is uh, Johnny Darko. Really? I've oh yeah. Cut of that. It's got like, I would say, an, like an extra ten minutes, and the ending is like cut entirely differently. Um, hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that that's the the only director's cut I really you know hold close. But I I would say mine is probably Kingdom of Heaven because. Oh, nice. Totally changes the film. Uh, I remember watching the original version, the theatrical version, I should say, on like AMC like five or six years ago. I was like, this feels okay, but like truncated. truncated. I have to to imagine this feels like clustered together together because because the studio was terrified. Actually, how long is the director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven? I can't remember. It's a little over three hours long. Okay, yeah, I know. I don't know why they were a little hesitant now, which is weird. Right. This was a- this was after Return of the King made bank, right? Yeah, yeah. I think you'd have a little more confidence. You think the action movie <laughs> from Ridley Scott of all people, right? Of all people exactly. being able to make its money. 
it did yeah i think that movie ended up breaking even even with like the horrible reviews it got it did break even and i think that's what encouraged them to at least i think it's re- reputation cut. has gotten better now thanks to that cut i think it's oh yeah oh that's why i think like a lot of opinions have turned on it is that now that we've seen like what was the original intent with the film and that it is it is a truly an epic movie yeah. when you watch it that way it feels epic in scale the character there's so many characters in it it feels grand that was the problem with the theatrical cut is that it just feels like it, it, it loses so it's much not just like trucking its story it's also the scope right flat yeah yeah oh flat is a perfect way to describe that version um but yeah there's so many versions uh, i i will say a lot of historical fiction films are definitely have that problem where there's a lot of films like that that are cut severely like i know troy was i know um um oliver stone did one alexander alexander that's like which i've heard when I mean, i've heard both versions of that are uh that's probably the heaven or the closest thing we've gotten to a modern heaven's gate right where like no matter what both versions are not great you know there's still problems with them but at least you have that other version the original intent version there and available yep granted i think alexander i think is like three and a half hours yep. long which is like definitely a commitment <laughs> yep. there is one last thing i wanted to say about the soundtrack of manhunter is that i do or i do really like the score now and again graham's theme is one of those things that i listen to a lot when i'm whenever i'm studying or writing yeah. In writing because it is just so the mood is just so palpable and palpable and one of those things that this is a you know whole again sound mixing very nerdy thing is that sometimes i like to shift the pitch down so it sounds deeper and when it does it is it sounds truly ominous <laughs> i think definitely i think this um manhunter has the best soundtrack out of the hannibal lecter films because i can't think Probably. of any it's I not the best Michael Mann soundtrack though, because it's got yeah. nothing on Tangerine Dreams work for Thief, which or in Thief or any of the stuff Elliot Goldendall or Anthol did for uh or in him, which be at Heat or Public Enemies. I actually do I'm not a, I'm mixed on public enemies, but I do love that Elliot Goldendall score. Yeah, that's the And thing. the fact that it is cut to that electric guitar rhythm. I like oh, what he's going for, I just don't think it entirely gets there. Right. That's what well, I'm that's doing. that's public enemies in general, I think. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, the score I think is definitely the the it stands out more than any of the Hannibal Lecter films because I try and think of the scores in Sounds of the Lambs or Hannibal. It or sounds like Dragon. John Carpenter or some of John Carpenter's work of that era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's mostly like the, like the thing in Christine particularly. Oh yeah, that's definitely speaking got that. Of, on well, this, speaking this of note. Spe- speaking of the thing, uh, I feel like I'd be remiss if or in a little in poor taste if we didn't mention the passing of Eddie Morcone recently. Uh yeah, yeah. Jeez. Hey, you know what? I, I will say that that's definitely a huge load of filmmaking and uh, yeah. orchestral work. But he lived a long life, and he yeah, and made Duke some of the most a, iconic stories. An, impre- an impressive backlog. Uh, speaking of the thing, uh, a lot of that score didn't end up getting used in the thing. Some of it was redone by John Carpenter and Alan Howarth. Right but excerpts of unused excerpts of it were used in the Hateful Eight. Oh, okay. oh yeah, I remember hearing that. I uh, like a Tarantino press conference but no that's a fantastic score both of those films imagine that's... how different things would be if michael mann w- or did more horror movies or, and uh... the keep did or, and the keep did end up turning out better and, th- or, and this actually clicked with audiences because that... i think he d- does legitimately make things that are unnerved good or in good god even you see this in his main or in string thrillers like the shootout the bank shootout in heat or is or in, i think part of it is the sound design because those sh- machine guns blister paint off a Right off of walls, it feels absolutely apocalyptic. <laughs> I, I, like I sledgehammer to the heart is what it. Or like each gunshot. 
Right. When I went over Michael Mann's filmography for the podcast, just to see which ones I have seen and haven't seen, I hadn't seen The Keep. And that's when I was shocked to see, like, oh, Michael Mann did a, a horror film? Because Manhunter yeah. is horror, horror, but it's very light. Yeah. It's 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 more yeah. leaning towards more, more like suspense. Suspense and thriller. I think yeah, yeah, that yeah. one didn't do well because of the same reasons The Dark Tower didn't do too well. It's because it's trying to take all books that are very, very dense, and The Keep is an adaptation. I just don't remember what, what the name of the books are, but it's trying to truncate into like this 90. In ninety to hundred minute thing, and I'm sorry, man. You're just, I mean, no matter how talented you are, you're just not going to be able to do that. Right at that point, you're essentially taking this huge piece and just turning it into like what is essentially a highlight reel. You're trying, you're trying to put it through a cheese gr- or a meat grinder, basically. Yeah. Right, yeah. Some books just ways, can't be films. Mike, not right. that they can't be filmed, is that they, I mean, they just can't be filmed within certain constraints. Like you need to give it that room to breathe. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think that's why, like, nowadays, a lot more. um book adaptations are turning more towards the miniseries or the television format okay yeah, yeah. like like what the, it's been happening with like stephen king's the outsider and such yeah exactly and um because i know they're still doing a couple stephen king films obviously it's never going to end it's always going to happen um but i know um like it's just James... gonna go through cycles or in like right, exactly. it won't be popular or, so, or in some years it'll go or come back right exactly i know james wan is producing um a salem's lot uh remake or well nice. i guess the, I, I guess technically the first salem's lot film because the other two are miniseries mike flanagan's gonna do anything else because i really really love yeah, dr sleep and he's doing he's doing revival speaking of director's cut i would really really love to see that during that extended cut that just hit home video a couple months ago oh that's i've seen that that is a really good one here's the thing like i'm waiting until i'm waiting until or until i get back to work so i can or, or go back there earning a consistent week-to-week paycheck right and you can warrant excess that expense. and uh that uh <laughs> yes carry on sale uh kind of left a hole in my wallet i i was the barnes and neville one yep i yeah. was about to take part in that and i the sale went live like thursday night i went on friday and uh everything i wanted was sold out mm. <laughs> it's like uh, i guess i'll wait for the there's restock. still stuff i want but i'm like you know what? no i need to save money i'm going to be a mature adult for once right yeah <laughs> same well, thing what would you all rate manhunter like on a scale of, like one to ten hmm I would probably give it an eight. I think it is a Same. really solid adaptation. Uh, as a film, it works really well. And as an adaptation of Red Dragon, it is a really good adaptation. Outside of the fact that it's missing like the actual climax of the story. <laughs> I was going to say, the, or in part, or in the actual death, or in spoilers, or in the actual death of Francis Tallerhide is a little anticlimactic. Yeah. That, oh yeah, that's something we should, probably should have brought up. Is that, yeah, I think... Um, if we had gotten that full ending that was in the book, I think it would have added a little bit more to this because, again, what we see of Dollarhide is truncated to a degree. There's we see very little of him, and what we do see is fantastic. Which I think it's trying more. to do that classic horror principle of the less you see the monster, the more intimidating it is. Or in this, well, the monster being a human in this case. Right. I, I get that, but I think Thomas Harris, his books are famous for being the first kind of thriller mystery novels that really made you feel like you understood the psychopath the killer mm, yeah um, yeah and i think that because when you take that out then you're kind of left with a very flat version of uh, a really something a lot character. less morally gray and a lot I mean, less psychologically complex right exactly because i think that's why i will say i think red dragon is a better adaptation of the actual novel than manhunter but manhunter i think is the better made movie um, yeah, because yeah. Red Dragon definitely gets the character of Francis Dollarhide a lot better, and it understands. It actually applies everything to him that is there. Like, um, they make a joke of it in this version where they say, like, "Oh, he was molested by, by his mother." When they're talking to Freddie Lowndes and they're giving him like all these bullshit facts that aren't real, just so they can, you know, provoke him to come out again. Um, 
and they they skip they kind of make it a joke like oh he was molested by his mother well that's actually the case in the red dragon book and the red dragon movie is that yeah his it was his mother or his grandmother abused him and that's what kind of started to form the psychosis and then the actual red dragon thing like the whole mythology around that we don't really see in manhunter at all it's i was gonna say i think it's a big maybe, part in red I don't know, dragon maybe that right. was just, i maybe i think that's maybe something studios just couldn't get behind um, yeah or man he's, himself i'm not i'm not entirely sure like i am happy they still have that one scene where he's torturing lounge and he's got that you know you're an ant in the afterbirth and you know he's yeah. You know, really having that do get problem. a little ridiculous, like good God, or William Peterson jumping through that window to get Dollar Hide. Which <laughs> is one of those one of those things that Michael Mann Michael Mann tries and mostly succeeds to make everything he can look cool as hell. Even makes something as, or as silly as that look cool as hell. Yeah, it looks which, cool as hell. Yeah, I also think is. maybe Michael Mann might have veto, might have vetoed it, or in t- or might have vetoed the Red Dragon stuff just to, to preserve the realism because. I mean, I think we realized if we go too much on this, there's a chance this could end up looking like a freaking Batman villain. That is true. I will give you that. Yeah. Which, um, it, it, speaking of that one shot, I just want to say when he jumps through the window, when William Peterson jumps through and is about to get um, Dollar Hide, in the context of the way it's shot, it's very cool looking. It looks nice. But thinking of it as a scene, I'm like, okay, so he jumps through the window. Francis just raises his hands like and holds him like a baby and throws him into the fridge. Like, I want to see that as one fluid moment where jump through. Huah! And just crash into the um, fridge. Yeah, there were like, like five. Actually, cuts speaking as someone, that right. scene. yeah, yeah. Speaking as someone who has tried to shoot some small apartments, maybe that could have just been the restraints of location. Oh, absolutely. Although mm-hmm. there, there is a lot of good location. Fun, f- funny thing is, I remember uh, for a period of time, the last quarter, I used a shot from this movie as my Zoom background. Nice. <laughs> it's <laughs> nice. the one in a doll. It's in Dollar Hyde's apartment. It's the is one. It the Mars right thing. The ki- it's the ki- one in the kitchen where they're in the green lighting, and you can see the moon in the window. Oh, yeah, oh okay, yeah, yeah. nice, nice. That's yep. good. But yeah, um, overall, I would give this an eight out of 10 just because I think there needed to be more with dollar hide. I do think they need to have, and not just because more Tom Noonan is a good thing is a good thing, but because it adds so much to that character. And I think that's what you see more in the red dragon film is that you do see more of Francis, the character you get to understand his relationship with Rita and that I feel feels a lot more natural. And you see, you see, it takes place over a couple days instead of in this in Manhunter, their relationship forms in like a night. Yeah, and, I was yeah. about to say, as gauche as this sounds, it's almost like a Disney relationship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's like, uh, oh, I'll take you home. She's like, oh, okay. He's like, oh, we're going to stop somewhere. He's like, oh, where? Oh, somewhere special. And then they do the tiger scene. And in, in the normal. Say, that is legitimately. And that didn't. In that moment, the creepiness of it didn't hit me until like it was over. Like, wait, oh, yeah. I'm like, I'm like, oh, this is almost just like wait a fucking minute it's creepy and weirdly sexual yeah. when you look at tom noonan's performance in the background yeah. oh He's yeah like, like yeah it's one of the few cases where somewhere where a character doing nothing is a lot creepier than they're doing them doing something mm. you literally yeah. cannot pin them down right exactly and you know you get that little thing right, of like you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah you get that thing where specifically sorry i've been watching a lot of archer recently oh that's okay that's okay <laughs> <laughs> no that's that's perfect um i do like his, how he's handling that performance is that like in that moment clearly the tiger is supposed to be him you know he's yeah. the tiger he's that thing that's got it's that somewhat symbolic yeah it's very symbolic and it's very it's handled very well but to get to that scene the just the setup of their relationship i don't think feels as genuine although i will say it does benefit the one scene where he sees her and the other co-worker at her front door and he starts envisioning them like having a very sexual moment mm. even though it's not happening at all and there's clearly like no actual sexual tension between the two um 
I think it adds to that because it shows how attached he gets to when he does find attachment, he gets, he latches onto it so quickly and holds on. And then when he sees something that shouldn't cause any sort of alarm, maybe like a 10% alarm, like, Oh, what's going on there? And then there's an alternate yeah. universe where Francis Dollarhide is the main character of this. And this turns right. into like a, taxi driver, <laughs> or like a false Raider God's lonely man movie. <laughs> I would watch that. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but, Chandler, what about you? What would you write this? I mean, since, since this was my first viewing, I would give it a seven. Um, I'm sure that would rise upon subsequent viewings, but um, the score really just took me out of it in a few places. The score or the um, soundtrack? Because I mean, for me, it was mostly just the soundtrack. Well, I guess a combination of the two. That's fair. Um, I mean, like it's it's not. I don't think it's fair to like be critical of things because they are quote dated. But yeah, that's why I like to say of its time. Dated is yeah. honestly something I only like to say. Or I say if something truly has not aged well. Yeah, that, that that's that's what I mean. Um, to a little too of its time for me to um, yeah. like stand behind because I was not you know alive like, in the '80s when this came out. Trying to be contemporary, like even in his film version of Miami Vice, it's not like the '80s show at all. It is very much 2006 in its sensibilities. Oh yeah, absolutely. Is, well, yeah, he, he, he it because I don't really like the music. That's just a personal taste thing. Although I do really like very the casting of a. I, mean, I do love the casting of uh, Colin Farrell and, R- and Jamie Foxx's Crockett and Tubbs. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, th- I just wish it had a better movie. We're in the back of my, or at least or in a more cohesive one. It's the attempt. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's, what, that's how you can describe say, a lot of. Uh, if you already Michael saw Rance Collateral, you basically saw, I mean, got whatever you were going to get out of Miami Vice. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's how you can describe a lot of Michael Mann's work. Speaking of Tom Cruise from earlier, I just remember we mentioned. We got into a whole tangent about Vanilla Sky. I'm like, oh, right, Tom Cruise. He's worked with Tom Cruise. That's one of those actors I'm legitimately shocked Michael Mann hasn't worked with more. What was Tom Cruise in? Collateral. He's Vincent. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's on my watch list. I I think at this point it comes down more to budget than anything, because I know the budgets on Black Hat and Public Enemies were not the biggest. (laughs) Actually, you know, actually, Black Public Enemies was $100 Really? Oh, wow. So was Miami Vice. Uh, like, okay. That's one of the one, another reason why. The thing, actually, I had a or in a bit of a theory. Speaking of public enemies, or in a, I think or in a, they should have kept the digital stuff for the action, the outdoor stuff, or in stuff, or whatever it needed, or in a moment needed to have like some sort of speed and agility to it. But everything else, sh- they should have kept thirty-five millimeter. They should, because he already did kind of mixed the two with Collateral and Miami Vice. Right. Well, I think that comes down to um, at that time period. That's two thousand nine, I think. So, we... and it's not a bad HD transfer either. It has to be the cameras from whatever. Yeah, that's a, the thing. A lot of digital stuff shot in the two thousands had this problem. Like twenty eight days, even twenty eight days later, had this. Well, yeah, they they shot with practically a camcorder. <laughs> it, it, quality wise, I mean, it looks like how a camcorder looks now is how twenty eight days looked back then. Um, I think the reason Public Enemies turned out that way, especially, is because. 2009 to like 2011 was this really weird period where a lot of filmmakers were switching to digital and had no idea how to actually shoot digital. I remember I was actually, um, uh, I think I mentioned this before, but I watched Kick Ass a couple months ago and uh, the night shots in that, or in that, I, when I looked up, a good chunk of this was shot on 35 millimeter, but I think in the night shots, it looks like that digital film grain. Right. Either that or it was poor color grading. Yeah. And I know that was a problem, even in like major films, that was a problem too, because I remember, um, uh the fourth this is, this is well i guess johnny depp was in public enemy so it's fine is the fourth pirates of the caribbean film i remember it looks terrible and that movie cost 300 million dollars and it looks terrible because just, they were just shooting on digital for the first time for them and no one knew how to use it i suppose like the director or the yeah. cinematographer for that matter 
which I get because it's totally it's changing formats essentially. And yeah, it, you're, we were you're, still you're, learning. You're, no matter what, it's like C- or in the early days of CGI. We're just gonna have growing. The sooner we accept yeah. that, the better. Growing pains. Right. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, the, my favorite when it comes to the uh, the actual non sequitur part of the show. Y'all ain't seen anything else good lately. I mean, like, what, I, mean, what's I have honestly not watched much over the past week. Um, I I've actually been working. We mentioned that. I actually, uh, I actually have watched a couple of good, great titles recently. Uh, I finally checked out another Clint Eastwood movie, High Plains Drifter. Oh, I've been meaning to watch that. How was that? That was friggin' great, honestly. Not a mo- the movie I expect. Clint Eastwood is one of those guys who I, I mean, my dad lo- loved him obviously for Good, Bad, and the Ugly, for Dirty Harry, and that kind of I mean, the stuff he's iconic for, but. Yeah. I think one of the things that even people who are critical of both critical and um, and uh, supportive of him miss is that he was actually very versatile with his image. image, like he was actually quite critical of himself, and could be he could be sensitive, he could be tough, he could be psychotic, or even psychotic, he could be normal. Well, like he actually had a surprisingly around a range, and even to stuff like the, recently he did the, did the Mule a couple years ago. That is not a movie about an old man laughing at or looking at. What's the what's the Simpsons joke again? Right, the old man yells at cloud. Oh. <laughs> Anything about out of touch? It's not old man yells at cloud. It's more old man laughing at himself for yelling at cloud. Him trying to deal with his own out, which I thought was actually quite foresighted. It's going to be an interesting day when when we finally lose him. Is what I'm saying. No, that's very true. He's he's done even for his age he's done a lot of fantastic films even in the last couple of years richard yeah. jewel i think was probably a misfire because nobody saw it but i, I, know the Mule I liked really it good. i saw it i liked it Not yeah, great, I, I, that's what i heard yeah that's what i heard just it's middle of the road but i remember like i remember in like 2008 people thought like his career was done because he did grand torino and that was sort of supposed to be his big send-off mm, yeah. and then, like a few years later he's like i'm back i'm directing again i'm tired yeah. <laughs> i think he's pretty much just gonna direct till the day or until the day he dies right yeah. exactly like scorsese yeah well, I Speaking saw. Way, anyway, he's, his oh. next movie is that Killers of the Flower Moon, which is going to have a very Western bent to it. That reminds me, I don't want to give too much away for High Plains Drifter because the twist at the end is very much. I mean, it feels like a, cl- in a classic EC Comics type thing, which is weird. Not a comparison I was expecting. <laughs> I want more Western horror films. Yeah, you know, I love Western stuff horror. like like from Dust Till Dawn, Bone Tomahawk. That this. Well, it's a, it's a genre that's so barely tapped on in movies. We need more of Which it. Which is I... weird because it seems like one of the most innately cinematic subgenres. Right. A nice and combo. Yeah. In itself, westerns are a, a cinematic form yeah. that you can tell very of, well. That I brought, brought up on time I got. I started reading S. Craig Zeller's Rates of the Broken Land, which we mentioned really Scott over. Ran a few years ago, really Scott was tapped to direct and Drew Goddard was tapped to write. Ran this was still when Fox was its own entity and not bought by mm-hmm. Disney. And uh, nothing's updated, which is a shame because I started reading it like, this would make a fucking amazing movie. Yep. I I would totally believe it. he's a fantastic writer. Yep. Ryan, really, yeah. Ryan, plus when you get Ridley Scott and Drew Goddard behind it, right. Ryan behind it. Oh my god. That I think that was announced like right after they just done The Martian and it was huge. Yeah. I was gonna say we're gonna say it was that when it was like I think early 2016. That yeah, and Mel Gibson's remake of The Wild Bunch are two or the two in development hell products I really want to see the most right now. I I would enjoy that a lot, but um. I. What about I, you? What you else? Asking. Who are you asking? <laughs> yeah, I, either you go ahead. Um. Well, Shanley, you haven't seen anything new, have you? Well, my roommate uh got me started watching uh the show Euphoria, which uh visually stunning. Mm. Um, looking forward nice. to watching that. So I I recommend that it's on HBO. But uh, other than that, 
I have not been watching that much recently. What about you? I've um I just watched on Friday um it was Red Eye it was a Wes Craven film. Oh yeah, this is one of I think the last one of the last ones he did. Or he did or I know he did. Well, the last one I did that I think people generally liked because after this he yes. did Cursed and Scream Four. People well, Scream are coming 4 around is Scream Four now, and uh, I heard what, in, speaking of uh, director's cuts and mo- movies that got or in butcher or in butchered by test screenings and so or in studio mo- or in meddling. Uh, cursed, I heard, is one of those cases. Yes, Cursed is a film that was funny enough. Cursed, it was uh, definitely <laughs> Weinsteined. And a- um, it's an aptly named film. Right, exactly. It was a. It is the closest thing in horror that there is to the Snyder Cut, I think, in the sense that they had shot a completed film. It was totally done. It was ready to go. They just need to do the visual effects work. And then the the Weinstein brothers were just like, meh, let's totally cut out a lot of the movie. So they changed. Harvey Scissorhands strikes again. Exactly, ah. exactly. So they cut out, I believe, at least 95% of the original film is not in there. Um, they changed, they reshot everything pretty much. They changed character dynamics because originally, I believe, um, Jesse Eisenberg and Christina Ricci, their brother and sister in that film, um, in the original one, they're not, they're not related at all. They're just characters that meet up and because of an accident, that's how they kind of connect to each other. Um, but yeah, that, that movie has so many, so many issues with it. But, um, Red Eye was a film that came out, I think Curse was supposed to come out, I think like 2003 and then it got pushed. Just got it got delayed because it kept changing. Red things. Eye was two thousand five. So, yes, and Curse came out the same year. Did it? Yeah, it did. Came out two thousand five before Red Eye. So Shit, Curse had right. Curse had just say, come out. After it. I first, yeah, I it had just come out, and he did Red Eye, and then Red Eye came out and was super popular. Did very well. I checked the box office. It was like made almost a hundred million dollars, which is ridiculous to think about for that kind of a film nowadays. Unless um, it's something like The Conjuring, or it's something that has kind of a big name value to it, right? Exactly. Or it's one, and... or it's one of those jump scare spook of last night. Right, Carnival <laughs> Spookhouse is one. I remember that's the name I mean, that stuck out to me because when I was first re- when getting it, when like getting into mov- movies, I'm or like seriously getting into movies when I was when I was entering high school. Well, because that's when my parents stopped caring whether or not I saw R-rated stuff or not. Right. Yeah, same. And, uh, so that the floodgates just kind of opened, and one of the things that intrigued me most was Evil Dead. And when I was starting to hear about Learn about it. The term I kept running on was Carnival Spook out. Uh, with that sensibility. I'm like, mm. I don't think or stuff like The Conjuring does it as well as Sam Raimi, but it's when I still enjoy it, even if I am kind of sad that that's the only horror that seems to get, get traction with mainstream audiences anymore. Right. Yeah, that is true. Um, Red Eye is definitely, I think, Wes Craven's most oddly grounded film, um, which is also ironic because it's a plain and it's a plain movie, but it's who um, were hard to pin down. Right, exactly. Oh my god, his filmography like, I, is so all over the place. <laughs> I, like, I like his Swamp Thing movie. I know it. Has yeah. Fun, and I know and I know the suit doesn't look that great, but I still enjoy it. It's a really fun I, B movie. I actually uh I have the comic adaptation sitting in uh, my closet actually. Oh, nice. Like yeah, the original. I'm not yeah. too familiar with his filmography other than he did uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. He yeah, did, um, yeah. What other Elm than Street. the Elm Street movies. Eyes, like one of the one of the, I mean, he's up there with uh Carpenter, Toby Hooper and uh or in George Romero in terms of like the iconic horror directors of his time. Right. Yeah. He okay. Also, nice. He, he he's the creator of Scream and um. He also did uh, People Under the Stairs, which was uh, an inspiration for Get Out. I have that Blu-ray. I need to watch it. Interesting. I've been um. But yeah, he's a, he's a, he was a really good filmmaker, and obviously, I think he, I think he was just as important to horror as George A. Romero was. 
um, for very different reasons, of course, but they were both like the grandfathers of modern day horror. They were very much responsible yeah. for what horror became and how it's seen now is they laid the groundwork in a lot of ways. But Red Eye is very good. It feels like it doesn't it doesn't feel like a Russ Quaver movie, though. And I mean that in the sense that it doesn't feel like something he would have done. I think if he had not done Curse, he would not have done that movie because I think that movie was a way for him to clear his name a little bit. And about bounce back is kind of well, if not catharsis, it in at least kind of well a palate cleanser. Right, exactly. Because up to that point, it was like he had done Scream one, two, and three, then Cursed, then Red Eye, and obviously two and three, Scream two and three are starting to get like a little bit more recognition, I think now. But when they came out, they were not liked. They made money, well, but they Scream were two cool. actually, I think, was fairly well. Well, like Scream three, I remember got Scream three hated. People hated Scream three, and I think you know he had that, and then Cursed, which was a huge, well publicized problem film there were so many issues with it that they had in production which i don't even think were west craven's fault it was just because he worked for a company that it was happens shifting it views yeah exactly and then he wanted to in some way kind of turn his career around so he did red eye so he did that and then for whatever reason even though it was a huge success he didn't do another movie for five years and that's i don't know maybe maybe or may, could, could be burnout maybe or maybe he just wasn't getting job offered that's possible because then he did that's, my soul to take which it is could like be a really number of small things board. yeah yeah, and he did My Soul to Take after that, which is not a very good movie. It's, yeah, I remember. It's very much him. It's It feels like a parody almost, like he's trying to do his own shit. All I remember is that the poster <laughs> looks very similar to the one for Identity. Oh, yeah, I remember that. That was a that was a bulk of a nice thing. It was strange. But yeah, so he did that, and then he did Scream 4. That was his last when, movie he ever actually, did. I just realized something I wanted to talk about this episode so that I'd like to before. One of the, my, my favorite trends of horror in the 80s, specifically studio horror, that I don't see a lot of now is like what I like to call prestige horror, not elevated horror like or like stuff like A24, Artisan, the the Lodge, the Lodge, Ari Aster, whatever you stuff horror movies that look like they kind of that are feel like they're above being horror movies. I mean prestige as in like they have the best resources with the best directors with the best cast that they're they shine and look like perfume commercials stuff like the Tony Scott's The Hunger or Paul Schrader's Cat People. I count this in that league. Um. Manhunter definitely, I think, would yeah. definitely fit. I, I love horror movies that I mean, look pristine. Like, I think the closest thing we've gotten, which, I mean, even though it has another, uh, I mean, some more of, more of a giallo in its DNA, is the Neon Demon. The Nicholas yeah. Yeah. That's the closest Doesn't. thing I think we've come to it in recent... Very uh, perfume commercial. Yeah, well, it's not perfume <laughs> commercial, at least slick. I mean, yeah, like, yeah. The Hunger <laughs> was the movie Tony Scott did before uh, Top Gun. You know, I've got it. It's also got David Bowie, Catherine Deneuve, Ryan Deneuve, uh, Susan Sarandon. It's a. It's not in the most well-paced film. There are parts of it that do kind of drag, but it is a gorgeous-looking movie. And when and when it works, it really works. Oh, definitely. That's. I, I remember seeing that film and being totally blown away by how yeah, and strange also, it is. <laughs> speaking of public enemies, uh, another movie that I I like conceptually, but don't but don't really like as much in practice is uh, Paul Schrader's Cat People. That said, when speaking of David Bowie. That song he did for that movie is one of my top five Bowie songs. Wow. David Bowie did a song. And a bit of a nitpicky nerd thing here. That song has been kind of co-opted. Like, if you've seen Inglourious Bastards, you know which song I'm talking about. And it's and the opening of Atomic, Blo Atomic Blonde. Hmm. Which, the sad thing is, I love that song, but they but whenever it's used in a movie, it's they never use the best part of it, which is the synth digression that goes right into, like, the five-minute, 21-second mark. Wait, is it the gasoline song? Yeah. Putting oh, out, yeah. Putting out fire. Which I like the soundtrack version more than the one that appeared on the album Let's Dance, because oh, yeah, the, yeah. that one has just more atmosphere to it. Like Good God, the, or the sound of the smoke, or the steam rising, and or those drum, 
those drums and again that synth aggression the 521 i'm like this is everything the movie was going for in just like one, in one song <laughs> i i i I think they've used that song a lot more than I remember, but I know it was in Atomic Blonde and Inglorious Bastards. Definitely in Glorious Bastards, which but it, every probably time one I... of my favorite uses of music in Tarantino's entire career. It's a tie between that and the Out of Time montage from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm, oh, and, yeah. oh, and yeah. the use of Hold Tight in, uh, in uh, Death Proof, which oh, yeah, that's great. we will talk about Death Proof one day. Oh, yeah. Yes. That's a fantastic yeah. film. I love Death Proof. Death Proof I, oh, it is I'm my favorite sure of the Grindhouse. On the podcast. I've definitely talked about it with friends. It's not Tarantino's best sound or movie, but it is his best soundtrack. Yes. Oh, the soundtrack, and that's great. I, I that is my this favorite. Scott film Pilgrim what got me in a T Rex. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. Totally. <laughs> anyway, I'd still I'd love to see a or in a comeback for what I call prestige horror. There's probably a better name for it, maybe neon. Neon horror. Well, I, think... I mean, like stuff. And here's the thing: there's some neon horror movies that still are, if not trashy, or at least a lot scrappier and rougher. I mean, stuff that looks like. Or it has that per, it has that perfume or any commercials expensive gloss to it. Right. Now that's I think, because it, I, think uh, I actually remember when we were when I was doing illustrations for the book Tales Under the Blood Moon. That was one of the inspirations for one of the stories. What was it? The um. The I, it's the one in I can't remember the name of it, but it was one of the early one. No, what was the inspiration? Uh, the prestige horror run, especially cat people in the hunger. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> Bring that looked. Like, I, there's I, a lot of stuff that I was been in, in through. I actually, there's John Carpenter, EC comic, oh God, yeah. comics, Wally Wood drawings, not and not just the stuff he did for EC either. We're just like oh, no, a Starship Trooper look to it. Yeah, you did a great homage to that in the book. I loved how that came out. Every piece of art is, that you did for my book is makes me so happy because yep. I'm it actually blew me away. I'm actually planning on doing some recolorings of those and post and posting them because I cannot. Because I love doing these in black and white, but part of me is curious to see some, what some of these would look like in color. Go right ahead, man. I would love to see them all decked out because a lot of these turned out very. I have the book in my hands right now, so I'm looking through. I'm just, I, I get know, so happy you seeing it. You wouldn't believe the amount of people who asked me for signed copies so far. And I'm not, and I'm not saying that Ern is an annoying ugh. I'm famous now. I'm more like, <laughs> okay, I really want to do this. How? Because a lot of these are friends from like out of town, town, and uh, well, you can't do a book signing under a pandemic. Right, exactly. I, I would love a signed copy. I will definitely, I will definitely give it and give one to you as soon as humanly possible. It's easier for people to live near. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is hard. Like I live in California, and it is oh, hard nice. to like get a signed copy out to people that are living in Nebraska. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm on the East Coast. I'm in Georgia right now. Oh yeah, it's the yeah. most I've used Venmo in a while because I've had to get to cover shipping costs. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I I'm just going through the book now, just looking at the illustrations. Hey guys, buy my book. It looks great. Buy I, my I book. Buy my, my book. book. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> Take my money. That from the critic. Also, I, I Chandler, making that. a remind me to show you the show, the critic. All right. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. a great show. <laughs> well, thank you guys for having me on today. I really, yeah, of course. I had a, yeah. Thanks for being. Oh, thank this you. Is fun, I, this is a fun episode. This is... It was. I, I told you I can add a, an extra 40 minutes to a podcast because I can just go off on random tangents, which are perfect for this. this is, we'll, we'll definitely have a part two to a yeah. few episodes. If, oh, yeah, if not Manhunter, which I think we could probably talk about more, but I'm to my right now. I can't really think of anything else I really wanted to talk about. I, mean, nah, I do. I'm trying to think of what else. I don't think Michael Mann is that I mean, a filmmaker that I would quantify as weird outside of this and the keep. 
Yeah, I don't. No, he's he's, he's definitely very more much grounded. a mainstream, mainstream, mainstream stylistic Hollywood director. Right. Yeah. Yeah. More like and action also, driven rather than like stylized. I would think. Which, no, more action driven, which doesn't mean I think lacking in complexity. He's no, no, no. That I think is still, or or still like or in the way it internal interrogates the psychology of both De Niro and Pacino's characters. And sometimes it's through the action. Sometimes it's just in their own. Like the way, like the opening of that movie where he's just drifting through the hospital, middle in the train station. Or a station, you start to get to know him just right there. It, it's yeah, just a that's guy a great movie. Forget or whether or not or it's a choice of life or in a, or in a lifestyle or as a professional criminal or in a criminal, he just is a guy who physically cannot slow down for his own safety or even because he or if he wants to. No, definitely. I think um, Michael Mann is definitely not what I would say. A weird, I wouldn't call him a weird filmmaker at all. I would definitely say he's a no. lot more grounded and i think that shows in his take on manhunter which is that, not, yeah which you know with red dragon that's a very which, operatic feeling film and this one's a lot more clinical the grounded is a good word a yeah the closest i can think of a modern comparison to him is probably christopher nolan which makes sense because he had everyone on the crew or in the cast and crew of the dark knight watch heat before produ production commenced i remember that yeah yeah you totally feel that throughout that film so yeah. <laughs> oh yeah god the amount of steely blue and blues in those mo in movies yeah Someone really likes Michael Mann, and I respect you for it. <laughs> Tenet. So excited. It'll definitely come out in a month. Anyway, uh, Martin, where can people find you on the social medias and such? Well, you can get me on Twitter uh, at the... <laughs> I, I used to have a different Twitter app because, uh, you know, change things up. Um, you can find me at only Mick Fisherman because... I wanted to keep some form of my old name. I, on there. I like that name, Mick Fisherman. Right, exactly. That's what I was I going for. I'd probably I adjust. It, I, think, I think of uh, Willem Dafoe's character from The Lighthouse. <laughs> get, or, I was or just the, about to or say. Or the sea captain from The Simpsons. I was just about to say, I think I had just watched Lighthouse. <laughs> I'm like, shocked they haven't revisited that yet. Now that it's on Amazon Prime, I re I'm going to get to the that rewatch soon. But I, I have like a huge... I have a huge pile of stuff I've rented from the library that I still need to get through. I saw the lighthouse on my own in a movie theater and it was the strangest experience ever. And now I've done my best to show it to all of my friends. I saw, I saw it with face. friends and uh, it was actually re a really good time. Yeah. It's, it's a fantastic movie. You guys definitely got to do an episode on that. Cause that's, Oh yeah. That is, that is what, that like is what Martin's special. Right, like oh. uh, I'm planning on saying something like one of my favorites, uh, big trouble in little China for like the hundredth or 50th episode. That's a good mm, one. Yeah. Like said those milestones, you know, Right. That yeah, and I yeah. also want to give space to some more obscure stuff. Well, that's for sure. We, that's, that's why, why we do this podcast. A, or overlook or something like I mean, like Vanilla Sky or Until the End of the World. World or Under the Silver Lake, which is as A24 crazy as people go and go on in line and in person and around these days. There are still some stuff in there that gets unfairly ignored. Oh, absolutely. Oh, there's so many releases that you don't even know A24 did. Yeah, there's yeah, things they do that they don't. Right, they don't advertise at all, and then you kind of you miss out on a lot of great things. Now, the good thing um, is, is that they're not that they're not that hard to track down because a lot, yes. I mean, a lot of them are available on Amazon Prime streaming. Right, when, exactly. So at least you can find them. It just it's a matter of just knowing they exist in the first place. The yeah. Lobster would be another example of that. Right. I don't think, it's, yeah. I don't think that's an underseen film, though. Film I call underseen. I'd say. I think I think it's underrated. Maybe I, I would say it's just underseen by general audiences. I don't I, once you get out of film Twitter and that general oh, yeah. sphere, no one's going to know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I'm semi-grateful, semi-resentful of film Twitter because it's just too much at time. 
times with our hands, I wouldn't have made some of the friends I have without it. Right? It's a great tool for that, but also it's a great tool at getting you angry about stupid things that you shouldn't care about. Speaking, yeah. speaking no, of, that's, anyway, that's why I'm not on Twitter. I had one more film I wanted to mention that I saw recently that I really liked. I found finally checked out uh, Killing Them Softly with Brad Pitt, which... Oh, speak, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a great... Probably one of my favorite movies of the last decade. No? I mean, there's a... I mean, I met, we mentioned... Funny that we mentioned Zack Snyder, director's cut right earlier. There's a sequence involving Brad Pitt and Lady, really, uh, again... Not going to say what happens because uh, it is a very big spoiler, but it feels like what if Zack Snyder made a mob movie? It's the way they, they use rain and, viol rain and violence and just slow motion. It's it's the most Zack Snyder thing to not be made by Zack Snyder. <laughs> I mean that as a very big compliment. I understand your statement. <laughs> anyway. Well, you can find me on uh, Letterboxd, Chandler Williams. You can find me on Letterboxd, Jack Rourke. You can find me on Twitter, The Renegade Jack. You can find out the podcast on Twitter at Warp Celluloid. And you can send our DMs are open. If you want to volunteer as a guest on the podcast, if you want to suggest a movie for us to cover, go right ahead. Don't be afraid. And you can find me on Twitter, like I said, at uh, Only McFisherman. Uh, I do have a Letterbox, but uh, unfortunately, I don't remember what it's called. Uh, so uh, good luck finding me. <laughs> so you, you guys don't get to see how I rated. Um, your favorite films and how much I probably hate them or love them. I don't know. Eh. I love a lot of terrible uh, things. So <laughs> I try to talk more about that's how I okay. love stuff. The more I hate it these days. Cause they're yeah. yeah. Oh, that's because, important. Well, I do hope to be a filmmaker myself and well, in the less blood, but yeah, tripping my, my own words again, the less bad blood I breed, the better. That is yeah. true. No, no. It's, yeah, okay. I it's, it's too, it's more fun to talk about the positive stuff anyway. Right, I, I, I've always influenced. I've That's always influenced. That's why I do this. We weird more. movies, not bad, not bad, so bad. It's good stuff because everyone does so bad. It's good. It's boring. The term has just become boring to me now. Right, it's overused. Yeah, and it's always yeah, like it, the same catalog of movies. It's always The Room, Birdemic, Troll Two. All it's always the same punching bags. Right. I, I did actually see a so bad it's good that I had not heard of, and it was fantastic recently. It? it was a uh, Xanadu. Oh my god, I love... Oh, yeah. Oh, we might have to talk about it on this show, oh. because I actually have something... Because, god, I love that ELO soundtrack. Oh. I have it's heard fantastic. I have it on vinyl, actually. I've heard of the myth of Xanadu. I need to see that one. <laughs> I, I, I saw it mainly because I heard about it on 80s all over. It's the best example of So Bad It's Good that I've seen that I actually like. might have to do a whole like. episode on just coked up 80s musicals. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's funny that this came out the same year so as... So much that. cocaine. Some funny I mentioned uh, Manaham Golan earlier because uh, the Apple came out the same year as uh, Xanadu, and it's even more of an insane fever dream of a musical. Like, oh my god, it feels like it was kind of made by an outs someone who is very much outside of the someone who loves American movies, especially musicals, but or especially rock musicals. Like, this feels like someone wanted to make Tommy, but uh, <laughs> ended up making something a lot weird. It's and it's also weird to me that someone was able to out weird Ken Russell. Yeah, that's a, a feat in itself. <laughs> yep, which Ken Russell is definitely a filmmaker. We will definitely get around to. Mark my words. Anyway, so yeah, thank you all for listening. Thank you all for listening. James or Martin. Shit, I'm sorry. I need to get used to that. It's okay. I don't thank, mind. Thank you thank for you being for... on. This is a fun. It was a pleasure to have you. Yes, thank oh, you. Thank you I so enjoyed much it. for having me. Thank you for so much for having me. I had a great time talking about Manhunter and about 20 other movies. It's always a blast. <laughs> As for our next episode, we may we may or may not have a guest, but I can also assure you it is very much a co another coastal crime movie, this time taking place far earlier, but released far later than this. Gla 
It's just so far out and groovy, man. That's the only hint I'll give. Thanks for listening. Catch you later. Peace. See ya.